time. This locates you to some extent, not just as author of the story, but somewhere inside it. You went to uh, Wild, Wild Lake High School. Who I noticed whose other big, big famous alumnus is Edward Norton. Oh, and you missed one, Michael Chabon. Oh, Michael Chabon. Yeah. Because yeah. I know he was in the area, but he was he at the, the school as well. I'm. He definitely went to Wild Lake Middle. Oh, yeah. He uh, might have been zoned for Centennial High School. The other thing we have in common is we were both on the quiz team. We were like, t- I think I'm 10 years older, but we were both on the It's Academic team. Yes, yeah, so like, you know, I was, I was the captain of the quiz team. But um, yes, um, Edward Norton did in fact go to that high school. And in fact, part of the reason he became an actor is because um, his babysitter was a friend of mine named Betsy True, who was an extremely <laughs> talented actress and, you know, ended up being, like, in one of the cast, you know, not the original Les Mis cast, but did appear on Broadway in Les Mis. And, but she was his babysitter. And, and he was like, oh, that acting thing looks fun. I think I'll give it up. And he is also from the Rouse family that created Columbia. So I t- believe Jim Rouse is his grandfather. I know he's part of the Rouse family. It would kind of make sense with his, a lot of his sort of political stat. I mean, t- t- what is that idea of creation? What, 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 was, what did Columbia mean and, and, and how did perhaps that change over? I, I actually met Jim Rouse as, as a reporter and wrote about him for the newspaper I worked for because he was considering a project in San Antonio, Texas. And Jim Rouse really was a good person, so down to earth. There's a funny line about um, Jim Rouse. I don't know if it plays in England, but they said when they say that Jim Rouse is a man of goodwill, they're talking about his disposition, but also his clothing. Okay. Because he just wore shabby clothes. He didn't, he didn't care about money. He didn't care about you know fancy trappings of wealth. He lived in Columbia in one of the original homes that were you know in the Running Brook neighborhood, and yet it was you know it's there on the first page that. Columbia begins as an act of deceit. Jim Rouse wants to build what he considers a new town, a utopia, that's going to erase class, race, and religious differences. Those things will become less important because everyone will be living together. You know, they had um, government-subsidized housing right next to you know the nice middle-class houses. That was his idea. It was like. And he was very, very concerned when he thought that his real estate agents were redlining and directing um, black home buyers to one area over another, and it turned out not to be true. But so he cared about all the right stuff, and yet to do this, to keep the prices of the land down, he had to disguise what he was doing and basically go around buying up these lots rather stealthily with you know with a cover from this life insurance company. And I felt like that was kind of Columbia in a nutshell. It, it had such good intentions. But there's this little dark kernel there. And since the book has been published, I've heard from so many of my high school classmates. <laughs> and usually in a really positive way. And one of them, who's now based in Tokyo, wrote me and he said, I'm really thinking about the race thing now. And we, we were so self-congratulatory about not seeing race. But now I look back at it and I said, well, you know what? The thing was is we didn't see race, but that also meant Columbia in its utopian, hippy-dippy, we all love each other, kumbaya way, was people that were very uncomfortable 
if a black student wanted to have an identity that was tied to his race. Like it was like, it was a horrible term in the States called Oreo, which is someone who's black on the outside, white on the inside. There's a real Oreo culture at Wild Lake that it was um, subliminal. No one ever used that word, but it was like, we love everybody. We don't see differences in race. Well, why does that guy carry around a, an Afro pick that has a black power fist handle? That's, that's not right. And I had come in from Baltimore. You know, I had actually come to Wild Lake. I'd done another year of high school before I came to Wild Lake to finish up, where the school had been more than 50% African American. And I just didn't understand sort of this resistance to the expression of black identity. But I understand it now, which is sort of the resistance to the expression of any identity that was other than being a Colombian. Right. You're like, you're supposed to be part of it. So, um, Colombia, you know, in the process of writing Wild Lake and then talking about it and dealing with this hilarious Facebook page called You Know You Grew Up in Columbia When, <laughs> where the people were like totally gung-ho to help me with my research. Like, you would not believe how deep these people would go. I'm like, I'm like trying to remember how the telephone prefixes worked and, and oh, everybody, people knew. People knew and they helped out and like, if you had a question about what restaurant was where, or, you know, Columbo's Pizza, they were all there for me. In, in writing the book and talking about the book, you know, I came to what seems like sort of an obvious realization is I'm very much a product of that high school. And I do have a lot of affection for it. You know, I... And then and the irony of ironies is I ended up with a stepson who grew up in Colombia as well. <laughs> and, and I found that I was the person who was kind of angry at the way it had drifted from its origins. That as imperfect as it was in the 70s as, and as doomed as open space education was, there was still something beautiful in the idea of Colombia, and that's kind of gone. You know, it's now... The affordable housing in the far western development is a $300,000 townhouse. And when people talk about racial diversity, they're talking about the Asian American kids who are the children of engineers and doctors and, you know, physicists. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's still good. And, and, and the religious thing is, you know, there are churches and synagogues everywhere now. You know, the idea that we would all go to the Interfaith Center is long gone. It feels like there's a kind of mourning for a, for a particular time period at the same time. I mean, that's the tension in the book. At the same time that, as, say, the character of AJ at some point says, when we were referring back to our, our conversation about rape, where he he says uncomfortably that's just what we felt at the time and so when there's a particular crime committed uh, not that it was okay but that we ha you have to kind of understand it so it's a, it sounds it's, like there's a like particular a, tension a dual innocence because it's the innocence of your childhood and we all mourn that whenever it was whenever it happened but also it, it, you know yes a mourning for a, you know a terrible beauty is born when people think they know the right way, when good people think 
they are so right and they know that they're right and they're so filled with their own good intentions that they can't see where they're going horribly wrong. I don't know a larger tragedy in human existence. Was there ever, a, I mean, in your experience being in, were there sorts of those, were you aware of those sorts of moments when you were, that I knew obviously you were quite, quite young, you, 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 you bought, not quite bought into it, but... I was aware as a teenager that I felt, I felt that my high school classmates were probably not as cool about race as they thought they were. And there's one story I longed to include in the book, but I couldn't establish it as fact. My memory is very, very strong. No one said I was wrong, but other people were just like, I don't remember this. That when we had school dances, there was a protocol in which we took turns having a white band or a black band. And this is, of course, supposedly about musical taste and style. But I remember it was like, oh, at the senior prom, we're going to have a black band. And I, I still, I wish I could, I would have put that in the book if I could have proved it. I think it, I, I felt like if I couldn't prove it, it was a bit harsh. That's my memory of it. And so even if my memory is false, and obviously I'm not going to argue for my memory over anyone else's. I'm the first, you know. <laughs> The idea that memory is fallible is basically what I've been staking my career on all these years. But um, I think that something was there. And I, I, know, I know that I would listen to my friends talk about why does that person have to act black? And they weren't saying that they wanted everybody to be the same. Mm. And when I had this exchange with my friend recently, I said it was, it wasn't that anyone was a racist in an obvious way. It's just that they felt that the expression of differences was so much against the grain of what we were supposed to be doing. Mm. You know, maybe if there had been someone who came to school who was modern Orthodox and wore his yarmulke and had, you know, payas maybe that would have been discussed too. It's like, why do you have to be that way? We're supposed to be going away from differences and, and, and the whole point of Columbia is we're all the same. I suppose the question I was, was asking, and this, this taps into to another part of your writing, which I'm really fascinated by the part of the story, was, is what can be said and what's not being said. Is that part of the problem that could you openly say well what does black what is what does constitute black culture what what does constitute white culture difficult questions which may be crude and unsettling to to a certain kind of ethos but which may be important to get to a kind of point of understanding i'm always telling people that the goal is to be able to check yourself the goal is to sort of have your internal monitor on you know my sister works for a, a large company barnes and noble and she once went to some sort of human resources meeting. You know, yeah, you know, they get these endless talks and seminars to make sure everybody's sensitive to everybody. And so you have like a bunch of people in a room. Um, they were asked, who here has ever heard anyone among friends or family say something racist? And my sister's the only person who raised her hand. And we had some impossibly racist relatives. I mean, like really bad, hardcore, heard some bad stuff. But come on, mm. come on! Like mm. you, you know, no. 
And people are terrified. People feel like there's no one wants to be called a racist, obviously. So they just say, oh, no, I've never had a racist thought. Well, like, you know, come on back up. It's not, if you catch yourself making an unfortunate generalization, if you're willing to stop and check yourself, that's more important than just going around saying, I never have. It's easier if we talk about bigotry. And I found you say to people, people like, I'm not a bigot. I have no prejudices. Because this is what makes me crazy. People say, I don't see color. I don't see black, brown, yellow, purple. I'm like, if you don't notice a person is purple, you're crazy. Of course you notice. And so going in a roundabout way, the best thing you can do is if you don't have a friend in your acquaint- among your acquaintances that you can get really down and dirty with, if you just, you just need one person in your life that you can say, <clears throat> okay, I want to ask you one of those really uncomfortable questions. Can I do that now? Then you have a problem. <laughs> You're, you know, and, and I also talk to people about when talking about that idea of checking yourself. I always compare it to it's like you turn your light on in the kitchen and a cockroach runs across the floor, and you can say, "I didn't see that." No, 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 no cockroaches in my kitchen. I keep a clean kitchen. Or you can say to yourself, "What was that? What, what just happened? Why did I just cross the street to get away from that kid?" Is it? You know, like, ask yourself. And maybe sometimes you're going to find out, yeah, you know what? I think I just did a really, I think I just did a little racial profiling walking down the street. Yeah. And it's okay. And But I do have that friend. As a matter of fact, she's someone, because I do write about race in my books. I will go to my friend Lisa. She's 10 years younger than I am. We grew up two miles apart. And we joked that we were like these sisters separated from birth. You know, two little bookish nerds growing up really close in this part of northwest Baltimore. I remember when I was writing the book, Every Secret Thing, I went to Lisa, I said, okay, tell me what African-American women think when they see an African-American man who's with a white woman. And she said, oh, they think he's really weak. He's not strong enough to be with a black woman. Now, I would not have come up with that in a hundred years. But, but you know, by the way, I actually said that recently when I was writing the character of Lou Brandt, I went to two of my shortest friends who are both novelists, um, Megan Abbott and Alison Galen. And I was like, what don't I know about being short? And they said, you don't ever think about it. And I was like, oh, it's going to see, because I was making the mistake, because when you're tall, like I am, it really gets imprinted on you as part of your identity. But then you're like, oh, being short for a woman is no big deal. Uh-huh. So she wouldn't think about it. And I had made the mistake of flipping it and thinking, if I think about being tall, then Lou must think this about being short. And so I kind of like, you know, I do a lot of this. But everybody needs to have that friend where you can say, um, can I ask you? And they'll tell you. You know, in talking about having that friend, you know, they had such a horrible week in the United States with the two men shot by police and then the attacks on police. And my friend Lisa, who lives in Atlanta now, wrote to some of us that, her husband, who is, is Jamaican, he has a busted taillight, and she said, no hyperbole until Terry gets his taillight fixed. I'm going to fear for his life every time he leaves the house. And you hear that, and you're like, you just, you have to give it up that I'm never going to have, I, I, 
I will never have to worry about my husband that way. Yeah. It's just a different world. And, and, and the worst thing you can do is like try to do that me too thing or like, well, you know, white people can get pulled over by police too. Like, oh man. So yeah, people need to have that inner check and you need a friend who can give you the outer check. There's a gender, there's a gender element as well, perhaps. So I like this bit from the book. Um, they, they're looking for a suspect in, in, in the murder in the, in the present day. Are using he generically or because it seemed probable a man did this, hunt shrugs and different pronouns men can afford to be. And funny if my wife picked me up once because she noticed that if I interviewed if I interviewed a female and she said, You have a tick where you say the woman writer. And she said, What's that about? And she got really angry with me. And I hadn't noticed I was saying it. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll That's this. interesting. That's yeah. No, it was a, fa- it was a yeah. very strange thing. And, but one of the things she also then said was, uh, she, I will always ask men about balancing work with childcare as well as, as women, which is my, which is my right on this. I'm, I'm so excited to hear that. You go away and sit down very quietly in the corner of the room and with yourself and some of your prejudices and preconceptions and not just your, but your judgments. That, and it was a very, uh, it was a very uncomfortable, you know, it's a good. It's a good level of discomfort, and the, and I, so many, and I get why people are terrified to do it, because, you see this thing that happened in the United States, where Calvin Trillin, a person I've met a couple of times and just absolutely adore, you know, wrote a silly poem about Chinese food and was accused of being a racist, and you know, Twitter goes, ah! and you know, sometimes Twitter gets in an uproar, and I think the uproar is deserved, but like. Okay, we've really lost our way. If someone who's writing silly poems about Chinese yeah. food, and and the point was he was making fun of that certain kind of foodie who must always embrace the most trendy food from the latest province. So calling out Chinese provinces in relationship to food, anyway, that you know, so you can, and so I get it. When you see people getting that furious about something that slight, you've got someone like Calvin Trillin who, you know, come on, he shouldn't have to defend his liberalism. He's-